This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, it's a grand old flag. The Demons' 57-year drought is over. The USA put on a show at the Ryder Cup. Surinamese football finds an unexpected diamond in the rough. And the Aussie women cricketers' streak finally comes to an end. All good things must come to an end. But let's start. It's just past 9.20 on Tuesday, the 28th of September, 2021. As we do at the top every week, Shuey, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? God, it just seems like there's more and more every single week. There's just so much crazy stuff happening in the world of sports right now. And it it doesn't matter what I do. It just keeps piling up. It's it's amazing. Well, there's no basketball on Shuey, so we have a bit more room at the top here. This is true. By the way, I think last week was maybe our first week ever where we didn't mention basketball. Just took us 68 episodes. And it was literally the first thing that you said. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, well, I'm talking about it today. I know I'm talking about it today, so... (laughs) <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Look, a few things. So first things first, a Portuguese travel agent reportedly booked about 200 trips all across Europe, Africa, and the US using the credit card number and PIN of one Cristiano Ronaldo. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Fraudulently, obviously. Yes, I'm sure, yes, he did, sure yes. he's not quite that nice to, to let people do it. <laughs> it was about a, a decade ago, apparently. She, she managed to get all of her clients to pay fees for their trips into her personal bank account instead of the store's. And I'll tell you what, if ever there was a doubt that there's too much money in soccer, he didn't even notice until recently. Yeah, right. Yeah. Less than a week's wage for Ronaldo. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. It is. On the soccer theme, very good start to the season for my Scottish team, Glasgow Rangers. Seven games in, top of the table, unbeaten in their last five. Six points clear of arch rival Celtic as well. And Aussie Ange Postacoglu's start there has been anything but smooth. They drew 1-1 with Dundee United over the weekend. And to sum up their season so far, they hit the crossbar not once, not twice, but thrice. Ah, yes. There we go. And Crocodile Dundee too, of course. Yes, Crocodile Dundee United. Ange. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, Aussie Ange, you know. Yeah. But I saw one of the most savage internet comments of all time. So Rangers beat Livingston 2-0 in the Scottish Cup. Livingston didn't register a single shot. Yeah. Not even just shots on goal. Not a single yeah, shot. Yeah, that's remarkable. But in the comments on the YouTube video, someone actually said, well, scoring goals against Livingston's not for everyone, referring to Celtic's 1-0 loss to them about a week ago. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, now, we'll talk a little bit about the Aussie women's cricket a bit later in the show, but I saw a hilarious Facebook video of the Professor and Barney show where they had Brett Lee and Mornay Morkel face a bowling machine set at their quickest bowling speed. Now, Binger, as we know, bowled incredibly quick in his earlier days. yes. He had one registered at 161.1, I think it was. But there was a pretty funny misread in the IPL where Mornay Morkel bowled what looked like a warm-up ball, maybe 130, 135, and it registered at 173.9. <laughs> so uh, they the machine to that. Yeah. Now, Lee came out and look, he didn't even really get close to one at that speed because it's going that fast. But when Morkel comes out, he had a leg pad on his arm because he's that worried. Yeah, as he anything. should, yeah, absolutely. Put on some bloody bulletproof vest. But no helmet. <laughs> you yeah, were okay. just right asking then. to top edge one into your face. Yeah, that's that's right. He had like a little you know skipper hat from bloody Gilligan. Gilligan's Island. Yeah. I, hope, I hope they had boxes on. Jeez. Oh, jeez, I'd want three, yeah. <laughs> honestly. Now, you and I... We Chainmail. Got, we, yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> Now, we've actually faced a ball machine at 160 before. We have. So we set one up for a mate's bucks party and it was set at 160 and we knew where the line and length oh, yeah. was. Just so we knew where stuff. it was pitching every single time and it was still bloody hard. I like, just remember seeing a tiny white speck in the machine and it was hitting the back fence. Yeah. It yeah. was ridiculous. You As basically it, had to be halfway through your stroke before the ball even left the machine. Yeah. It was crazy. And, and look, I think I managed to maybe nick one. And I was pretty happy with it. <laughs> well, our cover drives and cut shots are my favourite shots too. They're the ones that come naturally to me. And I think our mate actually had to bump it down to 155 before I got onto one. Yeah. I don't think I got onto one at 160. Even yeah. that's impressive. Yeah, though. yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's yeah, it's nuts. And when you take into consideration that they're not bowling bounces at you, they're not... Oh, well, you know where it's yeah. pitching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have so much more respect for, for batsmen after that. Speaking of batsmen... The Marlborough Cricket Club finally changed it to batters mm, this I week. Did, I did see that. At risk of jumping to... That wasn't actually on my shortlist, but you've just reminded me. No, no, I've I did, reminded I, I did see that. That is... Look, it's interesting because we actually spoke about that 
during one of the previous two episodes yes, about yes. the whole for you know for the for yeah. the female cricket do we refer to them as bats women and then we just went with batters, batters yeah, yeah and it seems like they've done the same which is yeah, it's a good move i'm not sure if they changed the fielding position third man though ah third person well yeah <laughs> fielding in the third person yeah, yeah. <laughs> so stewart was down near the boundary yeah. <laughs> <Elbow>. <laughs> anyway sorry to Speaking of derailed, the Ryder Cup, holy crap. Oh, okay. Gee whiz. Well, I'll be honest, mate, as someone who isn't a huge golf fan, I haven't been following it closely. Well, it didn't look like the Europeans followed it that closely. They got <laughs> destroyed. So 19 to 9 win, which in terms Pretty of in terms of Ryder Cup, that is an yeah. absolute shellacking. Biggest margin since it went to a USA versus Europe format. It was actually the USA versus Britain and Ireland. And in truly British fashion, they roped in the rest of Europe to play for them. <laughs> But uh, look, this, there was a 15-point win back in 1967 by the US, which is the biggest of all time. But yeah, the Europeans actually won the first point of the event, but it was just a bloodbath after that. They highlighted on day one by Patrick Cantlay and Xavier Shawfley's five and three win in the morning four balls. The Sunday four balls weren't any better and the singles were just horrific. The USA, I, I just I haven't seen a USA team play that well. Now, admittedly, I haven't been watching the Ryder Cup probably for that long. I think I got into it sort of early 2000s, but it, yeah, this was just a shellacking. And I'll tell you what, Bryson DeChambeau hit a 417-yard drive. Yes. So the shape of this par five was such that you're pretty much supposed to play it out to the left and then 90-degree angle, basically dog leg, you play your second shot and then your third shot in. He's cut the corner in a way that I don't think the developers ever thought anyone would do to the point where he had a 72-yard approach on a par five, a legitimate scary par five. So yeah, it. This is what he brings to the game. Love him or hate him, he just it's it's scary to watch. You got to love the cat and mouse game between course designers and players that yeah. are really capable. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. It really is. A um, couple of other things to go. The Astrava Strava Open was on last week, and and would you believe it? it we was- should probably. Say why we're saying that with Sorry, such yes. gusto. <laughs> Sorry, yes. For people that haven't been listening to us the whole time, the Astrava Open, basically they've got Astrava written on the court with three exclamation marks. Yes. Three. So it's impossible not to say it with some gusto. You have to. Yeah. But yeah, would you believe it? An unseeded player won. Again. Mm. In the female. It's a female-only tournament. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Annette Contevit from Estonia. She took down four consecutive top 10 seeds to win the title. She rolled Paula Badoza, Belinda Bencic, Petra Kvitova, and Maria Sakari. Didn't drop a set in the whole tournament. Didn't even go to a single tiebreaker. That sound familiar? That's that's very impressive again. Yeah, the, the, uh, at risk of saying the same thing again, there really is a changing of the guard happening by the sounds of things. Emma Raducanu did the exact yeah, same well, thing. Yeah, well, yeah, sorry. I didn't say because it was it was... Thought it was obvious, but oh, you're well, right. So it's, it's maybe not obvious for everyone. Not, not for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, this doesn't have the uh, not not quite the heights same. of yeah, the US Open, it's but not, it's still I mean, to not even as, as someone who's unseated to not even drop a set is very impressive. Exactly, yeah. and and the, the unseated player that she beat in the first round was a player who was a former number twenty one in the entire world. So it's not even like she got an easy first round. So yeah, well, well done, Strava, Strava. But I think the biggest story of the week, the Queensland Suns under-17s netball team, made up entirely of boys taking down the under-18s netball championship, beating the Bond University Bull Sharks 46-12 in the final. Now, it's a ridiculous scoreline for a netball match. There's no two ways about it. Mm. Netball is a game that, generally speaking, a 10-goal win is a big win. Mm. These games are supposed to be close. But there's been a whole bunch of uproar. There's been the boys being subjected to abuse. Netball Queensland's taken the whole inclusion over exclusion stance. What do you think about this? It's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, there'll be one school of thought that would say, come on, lads, let the ladies have their game. But as as you say, if, if we want to be inclusive, inclusive, the pendulum has to swing both ways, doesn't it? It's a really tricky one. I don't even know what I feel about this, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm at the same. I'm absolutely on the fence about it, like... It sucks because the boys don't really have a chance to play in these competitions because the participation rate amongst men and boys in netball is not particularly high. And this is the problem a lot of young female footy players have had over the years. They've had to play with the blokes because they just haven't had enough people to field teams. Mm. Yeah. But 
yeah, like whilst I'm not sure it's entirely fair, it's even less fair for these boys to be copying criticism and abuse. They didn't break any rules. They just turned up and played a game that they love and happened to do it far better than anyone else they played. It's, mm. it's tough. I mean, it would have helped that they the average height of their team would have been taller than any other team. Yeah. And that's pretty useful when you think of goalkeeper, goal defence and the shooting positions as well. Absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. And, and as much as, you know, it sucks mentioning it, boys are unfortunately going to be a little bit faster, a little bit higher at jumping, a little bit, you know, all of these things. That, Generally, that, yeah. That are quite, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that is a generalisation yeah. because there are a lot of women that are a lot faster than me, can jump a lot higher than Brittany me. Brittany Griner's dunking and we're not. Exactly. Yeah. But as a general rule, especially in those teenage, in those formative years, like it's, yeah, it's tough. Mm. How about yourself, mate? What caught your attention? Well, several things that I'll race through really quickly. So Lewis Hamilton became the first Formula One driver to win 100 races with his victory at the Russian Grand Prix. Jesus, that wasn't half-handed to him, was it? And you got the bloody leader spinning off the track with two laps to go. <laughs> and he just Mario Kart's behind him. He's just, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's. Well, he was going to get there eventually. It was going to be sooner or later anyway. Yeah, so it was I, only a matter of time. I don't know if anyone's ever going to break his record when he's finally done. College football. So I watch bits, bits here and there on ESPN when I can, but I saw a tweet at one point in the Georgia versus Vandy game. Georgia had 62 points and Vanderbilt only had 62 yards at one stage. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But what I wanted to focus on at the top here was, I dare say, COVID. So you and I basically started this whole podcast during COVID times and we thought it would be an interesting oral history and we've kind of negotiated our way as a globe through this horrible pandemic in all these different sporting competitions and I wanted to focus particularly on the basketball because we did have a week off talking about it. Uh, as some may know, we've already had Ty Webster in the NBL who will not be competing at all in the upcoming NBL season because he refuses to get a vaccine. But it's also a big issue in the NBA. So apparently in a recent Rolling Stone article, it's been mentioned that 50 to 60 NBA players haven't even had one jab, let alone both. The NBA claims that the vaccination rates, I think about 90%, but there's some pretty big names. So Kyrie Irving, uh, Andrew Wiggins, Bradley Beal, there's, there's several players that just will refuse to get the vaccine. And they've been kind of, I dare say, belligerent in some of the responses. So today was the NBA media day and there were some interesting questions asked and some pretty kind of glib responses do you know what my favourite question was of the entire day? What's that? David Letterman asking Kevin Durant why he's called KD. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have mixed <laughs> I, feelings about that. Like, I, I didn't like the follow-up question. But yeah. the, the first question, I was like, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's all right. Like, I'm not a big fan of Letterman. But yeah, was, no, me neither. I've, I've never kind of yeah, found thought, him all I, that funny. I thought but, for him that was kind of funny. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But it, it's just really interesting because we've got a situation where in San Francisco, players will not be able to play if they haven't been vaccinated. In the state of New York, players will not be able to play if they haven't been vaccinated. Kyrie Irving, that means, won't be able to play home games. Andrew Wiggins won't be able to play home games. That's ridiculous. It is. Isn't, isn't it, like, it ridiculous? Playing, and playing and 41 games and they're all the way. 41 max. And we know yeah. Kyrie's proclivity to just fuck off at a moment's notice. Well, and, true. and if they're going to back-to-back on away games as well, yeah. And, and also, so there were rumours that the Nets were shopping him because they just didn't want the distraction and the dramas that, that came along with it. And his people reached out and said, if, if you trade him, he'll retire. And that's pretty much recently, people are saying that that's pretty much been confirmed. That if wow. they traded Irving, he would just walk away from the game altogether. So I've read a few really interesting articles on this and, and I wanted to kind of cherry pick a few bits and pieces. So there was an interesting comment that Bradley Beal made about the vaccine. So as we know, Bradley Beal didn't even compete in the Olympics in the end because he got sick from COVID and they had to replace him with JaVale McGee. So one of his responses was basically kind of, well, if you can still catch it when you've got the vaccine, how good is the vaccine anyway? Now, there's been a lot of research and a lot of evidence that shows that the vaccine has done a lot and you're much less likely to go to hospital, you're much less likely to die, the list goes on and on and on. So that, yes, the vaccine does do a lot. And one of the common responses bouncing around Twitter, and I don't think it's perfect because it's an apples and oranges situation, obviously, 
But one of the responses is, well, does that mean you don't wear a seatbelt just because you can still die in a car crash even when you're wearing a seatbelt, you know? <laughs> so it's an interesting analogy. It's not perfect, it's, but it is an interesting But one. it makes you think at least. So I wanted to cherry pick a little bit from three different articles. The first one is from Vincent Goodwill from Yahoo Sports. And he's talking about the fact that these anti-vaxxers in the NBA are, are really getting a disproportionate amount of coverage. And it's not unusual. That's what the media does because lightning rods are always going to get more media. But this, and I quote, the graduates of YouTube University and the brilliant historians who vacillate between favoured Fraser's Tuskegee experiment to doing my own research appear to have very little knowledge of either. It's just used to shut up opposition as if they're picking up a beaker, a syringe and some goggles anytime soon. But in giving them a platform, we're giving them what they want. They have access to the greatest doctors in the world and will consult them for anything from the common cold to a torn up knee. But they apparently discovered something all the world's greatest scientists have missed. The ball players who claim the bloggers who've never picked up a basketball are out of line for criticising them are now doing the same tactic with science, except it is truly life or death. Oh, the irony. Mm. And that's a very good point. It is. Now, I want to juxtapose that with a comment that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar made in Rolling Stone in an article by Matt Sullivan. I quote, this is Jabbar I'm quoting here. They are failing to live up to the responsibilities that come with celebrity. Athletes are under no obligation to be spokespersons for the government, but this is a matter of public health. The Hall of Famer writes Rolling Stone in an email. Abdul-Jabbar is especially disappointed in athletes of colour. Here's a quote Abdul-Jabbar again. By not encouraging their people to get the vaccine, they're contributing to these deaths. I'm also concerned about how this perpetuates the stereotype of dumb jocks who are unable to look at verified scientific evidence and reach a rational conclusion. Now, something I saw really interesting on Twitter today was D'Angelo Russell of the Minnesota Timberwolves basically big up in Kyrie for saying the stuff that he's been saying. Now, D'Angelo Russell is apparently best mates with Carl Anthony Towns, who's gone through a torrid time of it. Wow. He lost his yep. mother. He got it himself. He apparently lost 50 pounds. He's recently come out and said in today's media day that he nearly walked away from the game because of his experience with COVID. And this is one of his apparently best mates and teammates. And then to make matters worse, so this is an article from ESPN today. There are now people saying that there are those within the league that think there's a different set of rules for the players and then for everyone else. So I'll finish here with a quote from Baxter Holmes in an ESPN article I read today. But a second league source also tied to training staffs noted that many peers, quote, believe the league is prioritizing the athletes' lives over their own. On the opposite side, some members don't want to force anyone to vaccinate if they feel uncomfortable with it, but it should be a standard set across the board instead of a league one way and the players the other. It's very concerning to everybody involved, said a second general manager. I'm out of energy trying to convince somebody to save themselves and their loved ones. So this is definitely a watch this space story, but this could affect the championship race. The Brooklyn Nets are one of the teams well and truly tipped to win the whole thing. Without Kyrie Irving, I'll tell you what, they're glad to have Patty Mills to fill a poor man's role in that in that team, but a he's bit, not Kyrie. I bet teams like, I love teams like the Lakers and the Clippers and the Nuggets and the Jazz and the Suns are all salivating at the prospect of a, an, an easy run through. Provided that these teams don't have one of these 50 or 60 players that aren't sure. vaccinated and refuse to get vaccinated. And obviously the Bucks are no, <laughs> no walk in the park. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's right. Let's be fair, but yeah, yeah wow. So, yeah. What'd you miss, mate? Uh, IPL. <laughs> Honestly, I have lost complete interest in this. I, I don't know. The, the times are hideous for all the games. Aside from Glenn Maxwell, none of the Aussies are doing that well. I, I'm saving my enthusiasm for the World Cup, quite frankly. Yeah, no, I'm with you, mate. Mm. I'm with, I mean, I, of all the formats of cricket, T20, well, not including the 100 because I don't count. That's not that. a format of yeah. cricket. Yeah, T20 is my least favoured. So I'm the same, exactly the same. I haven't watched it. Well, I can't say I haven't watched a ball of IPO. I've watched some highlights, but I haven't watched any match live mm. yet. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week takes us back to Suriname. It's a country I didn't think I'd ever mention on this show, let alone have us discussing it in consecutive <laughs> weeks. One of the smaller countries in South America. Oh, honestly. But their vice president, Ronnie Brunswick, decided to select himself for a CONCACAF match between his team Inter Moengatapo and Olympia from Honduras. In case you're wondering, by the way, CONCACAF isn't part of Reef Conker's leg. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the Confederation of North Central America and Caribbean Association Football. 
Now, to start things off with how weird this is, Brunswick is 60 years old. And even though he's fit, he's probably not quite fit enough to play in a match like this, much less play 54 minutes in this game with no previous football experience. <laughs> well, certainly uh, not at a professional level anyway. Uh, yes, so it must be a proper democracy with no... Uh... Banana Republic status at all there. I suggest it's like sincerely little girl yeah, sort of exactly, like yeah. that sort of stuff. <laughs> all hail Ronnie Brunswick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so some things about this guy. He's a father of 50. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay. He owns Inter Moen Gatapo and named the stadium after himself. So yeah, a bit of a narcissist yeah, as well. Just a little. Not surprisingly. He's a former rebel leader and army sergeant from the 1980s when the government was overthrown. He's allegedly a former bank robber and gold baron. And most importantly, he's wanted by Interpol after being found guilty of drug trafficking in the Netherlands and France with a combined 18 years coming his way if he ever leaves Suriname. So he couldn't have even played in the second leg in Honduras anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's only the vice president, Stewie. So you better hope that the president doesn't change their extradition laws. That is true. Now, he set a record as the oldest player to ever play in a CONCACAF match, but it triggered an investigation and footage of Brunswick giving out $100 bills to all of the opposition Olympia players after the match in their dressing room has gone viral. Well, oh, this must be the first time ever there's been a scandal with CONCACAF. (laughs) Well... That's me being facetious, (laughs) thinking of Sepp Blatter. Ah, true. (laughs) But, yeah, with all of that, it's led to both of the sides being disqualified from the league due to integrity issues. In case you're wondering, Inter lost the match 6-0. So for being super dodgy, all I can say is, Verdom de hell, bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, Stewie, history has been made. The AFL Grand Final has now officially been held in Perth. There was some speculation it might have happened last season that did happen this season in the end. I think it was a roaring success. Well, we weren't there, so as far as we know, it wasn't in Perth. Might, might have still <laughs> Don't been, carry Irving this shit. Might have, might have still been in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll talk about where we were, though. So this was actually, funnily enough, in you know nearly 40 years of existence, it's actually the first time I've ever watched the grand final down the pub. And it was good fun. It was a good experience. So my girlfriend and her friend go to the Inglewood. They have this tradition. They go there every year for God knows how long. They got down there nice and early at about one o'clock, got a great posse. I didn't join them right away. I got there a little bit later, got there at about three and, uh, you know, soaked in the atmosphere for a couple of hours before bounce. But yeah, it was, it was good fun. Yeah. I couldn't be stuffed going out. <laughs> that's be, fair enough. To, no, to be fair. Enough. It's hard no, to get home and you've got kids. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a long drive, one that I couldn't have made after that many beers. <laughs> so uh, no, I just had a, had a few of the boys over and yeah, God, I was... I think it was five beers in before the first bounce had even taken place. So happy days. Well, and there's, there was a lot of stuff on social media about the, oh, damn the night game. You yep. get too pissed before bounce. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. And that's it. exactly why I didn't get to the pub till three. Cause mm. I did make up for lost time. Oh, I, I started drinking at three 30, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I just, I was just smashing them down way too quickly. So yeah. First, uh, first half in particular was a bit of a blur for me. Yeah. Well, fair enough. And look, that's why I watched it twice. Uh, as I did last year, once uh, with beer in hand, as I say, and once uh, completely sober. But what a what a remarkable game. For, for a long time there, it was looking like it was going to be one of the all-time nail-biters. And then in the end, it was one of the all-time blowouts. Melbourne in the end, 21 goals, 14, 140, defeating the Dogs, 10 goals, 6, 66. And it's hard to believe that this was a game where the Dogs led by 19 points late in the third. Right, so a couple of things. First things first, it is great that the first bounce was so good. (laughs) Yes, it was clean. There's nothing worse in a grand final than the opening bounce having to be recalled because it's bounced frigging 50 feet off to the side. So that was great. Yes. Now, at four goals to one, basically at the end of the first quarter, I pretty much called Hendricks. Now, we should explain what Hendricks actually means here. This is a phrase we use from The Simpsons where, is it Benjamin Franklin's playing Jimi Hendrix in a game of ping pong? And he's like, that's game, Hendrix. Yes. So amongst our friends, we use the phrase Hendrix as a really quick way of saying game over. I wasn't prepared to call it there, but it was a bloody good start. Do you know it's ridiculous? Game over is eight letters. Hendrix is six. It's not even that quick. <laughs> That's two words versus one. Yeah, but. wow. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it just, it felt like 
all of that. And as I said, I was, I think I was on my fifth beer anyway. So I was, I was a little bit excitable. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, four goals to one. Oh, it's over. Oh, geez. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely wasn't. But then, yeah, all of a sudden, Marcus Bontempelli well and truly inserts himself into the game. He clunks a couple of marks and kicks some big goals. And all of a sudden, you blink and the dogs are in front. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. So first quarter, Demons dominated. Second quarter, Dogs got ahead and they're actually up by eight at halftime. So, of course, at halftime, they wheeled out that stat that no grand final has been tied at halftime since 1909. I believe it was South Melbourne versus Carlton. I think it was 19 all at halftime in that game. I think that's what they said. High scoring. Yeah. yeah. It's probably yeah. zero goals, 19. Yeah. One goal, 13, yeah. Over 100 years. And they, yeah, just yeah. crazy stuff. And then the dogs continued to pull away early in the third. And that's where people were starting to go, oh, hello. Like Adam Trelaw kicked two goals in the space of about a minute fairly early in the second and people start going, oh, okay, Norm Smith, because of course, you know, it's never too early to start guessing who the Norm Smith's going to be. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, the Petrarca first goal Norm Smith double would have paid out a little bit. I I think there'd be some happy people if they put money on that. Neither of us got, we got the, the demons right. And I got Petrarca oh, right Petra- for, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. for Norm Smith. Is it Petrarca or Petrarca? I hear both. Petrarca. Yeah, I hear both. It's so hard to know with these things. Yeah, but yeah, and as you say, it looked like the dogs, a lot of people are saying if the dogs are kicked one more, yep. maybe the game turns the other way. And this is the thing. We always talk about moments. It's these moments in the game. And for me, that moment was just after Bontempelli kicks his third goal. So it puts the dogs up by 19 and it looks like at that stage that, yeah, the dam is about to burst. And he was all over the place, taking strong grabs, picking up balls cleanly, just looking fantastic. Just a man amongst boys. Anthony Kudafidis like. But there's a lot that's been made about this moment where Mark Chocker-Williams goes up to Petrarca. Oh, yeah, on the bench. Sitting on the bench at the time that Bontempelli kicks that third. And... There's been mixed reports on what he said. We've heard the PG version. We've heard the the (laughs) MA15 plus. But essentially, it was along the lines of go and do your fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. Last game of the season. Yeah, really cheat him up. Because this is the stage that is just set for someone like Christian Petrarca. And so what happens is there's a pretty key moment, which... Yeah, so there was a kind of a sling tackle where Caleb Daniel kind of slung Gorney. It looked worse than what it was. Gorney really sold it. I loved BT's commentary, uh, Daniel and Goliath. I thought that was a great call. <laughs> nice. Which I didn't pick up on the first watch. I picked up on the second watch. But, uh, yeah, some people are saying that was a turning point too. Yeah. Well, that led to the ball going forward, which resulted in a goal. And, and from that moment, Petraha comes back on and what happens, the, the next two centre clearances... Basically, it's some combination of Petrarca, Oliver, Viney, Brayshaw. With super, super clean possession. And there was one beautiful spin move that Petrarca did too. Yeah, And it led to a couple of goals in a row from Bailey Fritch. Yeah. Um, the, the second... So Fritch had the one before the first bounce down, then kicks another one from there. And then the second one that Petrarca spun out of leads to a goal for Ben Brown as well. And, and it's like those are the moments where you just look at it and you think, okay... Bontempelli kicks his third and the game is absolutely, it's one. Teetering. It, it, well, it's basically like, it's almost over. You're nearly ready to call Hendricks pretty, the other pretty way. Pretty much, yeah. I, well, I did. I did live. <laughs> I absolutely called Hendricks that way. But from that moment on, the Demons kicked 16 of the last oh, 17 goals. It's nuts. And I had a friend who was at the game and I sent him a message. I think it was 58-59. And said, mate, what a cracker you have got. This is one for the ages. It's not a direct quote, but that was basically the sentiment of the text. And yeah, then the floodgates opened in the fourth and Melbourne kicked. So I think Melbourne kicked three really quickly at the end of the third. In, in the last minute. Yeah. And then at the beginning of the fourth, they kicked two really quickly. And it was basically over two minutes into the fourth quarter. Well, you would say the first minute. There was the Ben Brown clunks a mark in between two defenders who were basically coming at him from opposite sides. That makes it a four-goal game. And it's basically, yeah, it's it's all she wrote. And there was a 40-point turnaround in the space of about six minutes because they were down by 19 and then they were up by 20-odd heading into three-quarter time. Mm. Crazy. I have a little bit of a weird sort of thought on this, though, like as because obviously the rest of that game was then just party time. It was goal after goal. The Bulldogs couldn't get any sort of momentum going. They, they could barely get the ball out of their back half. And at some point, the players just take their foot off the pedal, don't yeah. they? Yeah. 
but watching the crowd absolutely going berserk. Now, obviously, there's a lot of Melbourne Demons fans over here, and it's so great that so many of them got to go to the game. There was plenty of Dogs fans too there. Absolutely. Yeah. But do you think that the Melbourne Demons are kind of now like a surrogate Perth team? I think there'll be a lot of Perth people that have gone, all right, the drought's broken. Now I'm a St Kilda fan as my second team. Uh, because now okay. they have the longest drought. I think uh, it's okay. 1966. I, I think a lot of that sentimentality was for the drought. Because I was wondering if it was almost like a Kim Clasters thing. Look, maybe t- the proof will be in the pudding. Time will tell. But I have a feeling it was the drought was a big, big mm. part of it. Because a lot of people that I spoke to who were neutral barrackers, basically their only reason was, or often a lot of people would say, I really like the dogs, but I want Melbourne to win because of the drought. I dare say that's my exact viewpoint. Oh, me too. And, yeah, and, and I think you and I have said this so much in our recording. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. Like this, this is probably the case where, yeah, you do want teams and, and fan bases that have never been able to experience it. You know, we've both got friends that are Melbourne Demons fans. Seeing one of my mates crying because he'd never experienced a, a premiership in his in his time like that is. It's huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're both quite lucky, very lucky with the sporting teams that we follow who have had a lot of success mm. just by pure luck, accident of birth. You know, we happen to be born in the right city in some mm. cases or we happen to pick a team. Do you know what I worked out? Next year, I'll be a Spurs fan for 30 years next season. Wow. Yeah. 1992. Oof, there you go. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? And you'll have missed the playoffs, what, like probably twice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Uh, that yeah. will change. <laughs> yeah, well, wow. Yeah, but wow. <laughs> we had a lot of success. So. But so, so many great stories from this game for Melbourne as well. Like Ben Brown, forgotten man at North Melbourne a year ago. Now he's kicked three in a premiership. Stephen May languished at the bottom of the ladder for most of his career, eight years at the Gold Coast and the first year at Melbourne as well. You know, they were second bottom in 2019. It's easy to forget that. And all of a sudden now he has played I think I heard round 12 was when he did his hamstring and he played the, half a enti- season. the entire season, basically, well, the entire second, second half. half. Yeah, well. Before the doctors actually told him how bad it was. Yeah, and he was one of those players that said, I don't want to know. Yeah. So, and thank God they didn't tell him because yeah, it, yeah. it was legitimately a six to eight weeker. Yeah. And the, yeah. the sad thing is that they didn't enact the, the sub. That was, that was a shame, wasn't it? Yeah. Especially given May was injured. Yeah, James Jordan deserved a little bit of time. Oh, he, considering the margin, he should have, they should have given him the last quarter. Yeah. Yeah, um, that was the one minor disappointment for me. The other one, of course, was Nathan Jones. He's always been one of my favourite non-Swannies players in the AFL, and it's just heart-wrenching to know that if this had been a season earlier, he would have been on that field. And also, had he been the medical sub, I mean, obviously there's sliding doors and stuff, but had he been the medical sub, well, it's not like it was one of these games where you go, oh, he hasn't played much, we shouldn't put him on there. Like, get him on there, he's well and truly earned it. So, yeah. The other funny story that's doing the rounds is a quote from Tex Walker when uh, Jake Lever left the Adelaide Crows. He said, he's left, (laughs) and this was around the time when the Crows made the grand final against Richmond, so they were very good at the time. But he said that he's He's uh, leaving success to chase money. Well, it turns out he got both. <laughs> and what a shambles the Adelaide Crows are in. Yeah. There's, there's been a recent report about that uh, horrid uh, training camp as well. We might revisit that another mm, okay. time. Yeah, right. yeah. So a couple of things, I guess. Let's let's sort of look a little bit more in depth at Melbourne. And before we get into to that, just quickly worth noting as well. Norm Smith only came in in 1979. So the first Melbourne Demon to ever win a Norm Smith was Christian Petrarca. Yes. Yep. And they call it the curse of Norm Smith as well, the Melbourne Demons, because they sacked him when many thought they shouldn't have when he was a coach way back in the day. And then they brought him back, but the damage was done. Yeah. And he, and he was also saying that the list management at the time was terrible and they would never, like, quite never win another premiership. So, yeah. Yep. But yeah, 39 touches, two goals, nine clearances, 11 inside 50s, 896 metres gained. Like, and the, and it was the, the contest possessions as well he had more yes. contested possessions than most blokes had possessions yeah so it's it's one of the great grand final performances of all time initially was given 40 they reviewed the stats and it went back down to 39 which is a shame but it's i mean it puts him in great company with simon, simon black, black from yeah. what 03 or whenever it was yep. so 02 or whenever yeah so yeah so on that note Bailey Frisch, six goals two, kicked two very important goals to start the run yes yes he did how unlucky is he not to have won the Norm Smith? Quite unlucky. Very unlucky. 
I'd love to know how many players have kicked five plus in a grand final. I didn't have time to do the research. I, I don't know if you Darren Jarman was the last to do it in like 97. 98. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not one of the late 90s, but yeah. Yeah, 97 or yeah. one of the back to backers. And that's funnily enough, one of the ones that could potentially be looked at as, you know, the unlucky ones. Six goals, two, 19 touches for Darren Jarman. But Andrew McLeod, because he's a midfielder, yep. 31 touches gets the nod. Yeah. And I know there's one in particular in terms of like the big Norm Smith snubs. I know there's one in particular you're a uh, a very vocal advocate. Oh, for. Judge shouldn't have won in a losing a losing grand final. No, I don't. And, think and as should. an Eagles fan, I don't disagree with that. And I think unfortunately over the years, it's names. They they like to give it to names as well. I, I don't think Dusty should have won it one year. The Tw- Adelaide one, twenty seventeen. Basha Hawley should Basha have won. Hawley, it. Absolutely. Yeah, and and the Juddy one. It should have been Ammon Buchanan or Lewis Roberts Thompson. I think Nick Fosdyke actually. Yeah, well, so, I'd, I'd have to rewatch. Fosdyke had twenty six touches. He was huge in that game. Um, Tom Boyd, twenty sixteen. I think that's he one. was huge. Yeah, yeah. Joe Henderson was very good in that as well. But uh, I don't yeah, think, Boyd, I, Boyd, well, yeah, Boyd, Boyd, yeah. I think stood his, up. I think his was all numbers. Yeah, he was yeah. kicking the ball long, but straight to members of the Swans team. So just to clarify, though, I don't think Petrarca. I think Petrarca. Oh, hundred percent, no, the no, worthy winner. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Don't, don't. Fritch was not a snub. This is just like an a so unlucky. He just picked the wrong year. He, yeah, yeah, like yeah. One yeah. of the best games of his life. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. So it's very unlucky. And it's got to be said, the whole Melbourne midfield was fantastic. Oh, they were. It wasn't just Petrarca and Oliver. Rachel played one of the best third life. quarter was fantastic he was excellent um your pick your smoky salem was very good Salem was good uh who else um, luke jackson was brilliant luke jackson was fantastic he threw a beautiful over the head handball in the first quarter but he was hitting blokes with long kicks he was pinch hitting in the ruck i think he might have kicked a goal as well he was fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. So, so it was all great just quickly i do want to <laughs> mention do you remember aaron keating from adelaide vaguely he played three games of AFL footy, played in the 1997 grand final, didn't have a single touch. Wow. Three hit outs and a tackle. Yeah, right. And he's a premiership player. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, that's the thing. That's the thing. So, it's yeah. like Marlon Pickett, who played his debut in a grand final yep. and nearly won the Norm Smith as well yeah, in that was, one. he was doing well. Yeah, until Dusty really kicked a few goals at the end of that one. All right, I'm going to give this like 10 seconds. Abra Bowl. Cousin of Olympic star Peter Bowl identified as that dickhead streaker at three-quarter time. Probably one of the more considerate streakers, I guess. I, to be honest, I had no idea it even happened mm. until the next day. So he got down to his undies. So he didn't get his, his willy out, which is good. And he did it at three-quarter time, so he didn't impact the play. Yeah, which is why I didn't. I'm probably at the bar. But will people stop paying out money for these idiots? Seriously, that is all I'm going to give it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Final thought on the grand final. Did you see, and I shit you not, Someone has released Melbourne Demons Premiership cheese boards. <laughs> that is a, uh, is a real thing. Well, I did see someone on Twitter basically say, I'm going to need to lock my account because the amount of Premiership stuff I'm going to buy yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. I heard they sold a million dollars of merchandise in the eight hours after the grand final. Wow. So I think Perth acquitted themselves very well. Uh, I don't know about the halftime entertainment. We didn't hear it. But for some reason, everyone was singing fucking cover songs. Like if they wanted West Australian artists, why weren't they singing their originals? But anyway, okay. I mean, it's all sing covers. It happened. I was too busy at the barbecue. Yeah, we never, we never watched those things. But a record attendance for Optus Stadium, 61,118 people. And the other interesting thing, Max Gorn gave a really candid interview with Damien Barrett on afl.com.au last week. And he basically admitted that the prelim they lost to the Eagles in, when was it, 2018? 2018 yeah. Which, by the way, was a year Angus Brayshaw finished third in the Brownlow medal. Um, he said they were just happy to be there. He was a, he admitted that they were just happy to be there. Yeah. And that kind of spurred them on. And then we often talk about you need a bit of heartbreak before you can kind of climb that pinnacle. But you can see also with the way that they celebrated after the game, you've seen them taking over nightclubs and, and bars and all that sort of stuff around Perth. You can see the camaraderie and how much this team absolutely adores each other. Oh, well, and there was a great moment late in the fourth quarter when the game was obviously done. Gorney's about 55 out. The whole crowd clearly want him to go for the Tory. And rather than kicking a torpedo, he hits someone on the chest instead for a better shot at goal. And again, he could have been selfish. Captain, just go, just rip it. And they actually booed him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no, you're right. They clearly have very, very good camaraderie. and And you do need it. You need it. Chemistry. So just a couple of other quick things before we move on. Goal of the year. We spoke about it last year. I found a goal of the year candidate I forgot about, which I think could have been in with a pretty decent shot. 
Kane Farrell kicking a left foot check side from the right pocket from about 30 metres out against Geelong in round 13. After a very nice little handball from Rosie too, just to make it interesting. Like, how does that not even get a look in? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah, And look, I wouldn't have remembered it if you hadn't shown me. But yes, no, that was a great call. And let's finish on a low. The long kick competition. <laughs> Fuck. I didn't see that. I had no idea I didn't see this. Well, you got lucky. This the is race when... was a bit of a low too. Yeah, think? I was surprised. Yeah, I don't think you should stagger the start. Like, well, if... and just if it was just competitors from two teams, yeah. it was a bit meh. It's like the stool gift. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was that shit. It wasn't a gift. <laughs> but uh, no, look, they're long kick comp. This has been a bugbear of mine for a while now. Like, it's kind of fun when you see them trying to kick the ball over the Yarra, but... This competition, it's just stupid. Like, for years, I've been scratching my head about the selection of the competitors. The longest kickers are rarely even in this thing. But this year, it was just, it was next level. Half the competitors were ex-players who could barely put one outside 40, let alone 50, (laughs) without doing a bloody hamstring. And they're just constantly putting guys in it with no toe. Like, 59 metres was the longest kick from Jared Ruffett. It's a good effort. Mm. But there was only one other kick in the entire comp that went outside 50. How much of it do you think it was the fact that Melbourne are in lockdowns and it's COVID and that sort of thing? They're probably blokes that are in media. Zach but... fucking Tui! Yeah, well, yeah. Shit. Zach Tui? Like, shit. <laughs> I love those like, Well, even Paddy Dangerfield. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, there's so many oh, guys. Oh, they might still be in Perth, are they? There's, yeah, that's Have they point. gone home? Okay, that's a good point. Yeah. There's, there's got to be some guys in Melbourne that can kick a ball further than that, even if it's just club guys. Yeah. Doesn't have to be, like, Brent Harvey. Like, just come on. Yeah, yeah. Either take it serious or fucking scrap it. Yeah. And one last thing with football while we're on football, the prelim here between Claremont and South Fremantle. Incredibly, Claremont Tigers did not kick a goal in the first three quarters of the game and still only lost by two goals. It was crazy. Nuts. So it was 43-5 when I saw the score and I thought, okay, I'm not going to watch anymore. <laughs> I should have. Well, yeah got, yeah, got pretty close for a yeah. while. Weird. And now, this week in sport history. September 28, 1920. Eight Chicago White Sox players are indicted for throwing the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. The White Sox owner Charles Comiskey was notorious for underpaying players, so the result was that eight players, Chick Gandle, Buck Weaver, Happy Felsch, Swede Risberg, Fred McMullen, Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, and Shoeless Joe Jackson decided to throw the World Series for a payoff from a gambling syndicate led by Arnold Rothstein, a racketeer and crime boss. Mm. Mm-hmm. The fix was actually largely successful because star pitcher Red Faber was injured and Seacott and Williams actually pitched in his place. Seacott's second pitch of the match struck Red's leadoff hitter Maury Rath in the back in a sign the players were going ahead with the fix. Williams lost three games before the gamblers reneged on their promise, claiming all the money was tied up in bets. The Sox players decided to double-cross them, though, winning games six and seven. It wasn't best of nine that year. Of course it was, yeah. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But before game eight, threats of violence against the players and their families were made, so the Sox lost game eight and the series. Aside from Weaver, the remaining players were given $5,000, about 75 grand in today's money, and Gandal was given 35,000, which is about half a million in today's Mm. money, a lot of money there. Yeah. Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, that is his actual name, (laughs) was appointed as the first commissioner of baseball. And although the men were acquitted in their trial in 1921, they were all banned for life and excluded from consideration from the Hall of Fame. Interestingly, St. Louis Brown's second baseman, Joe Gedeon, was also banned for placing bets after hearing of the fix himself. Hmm. Mm -hmm. September 28th, 1940, Michigan's Tom Harmon scores in just about every way imaginable in a 41-0 win over the University of California on what also happened to be his 21st birthday. First, he returned a 94-yarder untouched on the game's opening kickoff. He then completed a 72-yard punt return after initially fumbling the catch and having to backtrack 10 yards to pick it up. And then not long after that, the fullback scored on an 86-yard TD run on a reverse where he not only evaded the Golden Bears defenders, but also missed a tackle from a fan. Bud Brennan rushed from the stands in an attempt to tackle Harmon at the three-yard line, but Harmon easily evaded him for the touchdown. It's worth noting that Brennan was halfway through his hip flask, so it makes sense that his tackle missed. He was taken off the field by police, stating many years later, I'd have stopped him if I was sober. Bullshit. (laughs) Harmon scored four touchdowns, threw for another, and kicked four extra points in the match. 
Michigan day-by-day reports that even though Tom Harmon was the leading scorer in 1939 and 1940, his son Mark said that his father talked just as much about the team's only loss in 1940 as he did about any of his glories. Probably because the team's only loss that season, a 7-6 to decision at the hands of Minnesota, was due to him missing a kick for an extra point. Ooh. Hard to blame him for that, for everything else he did, though. Jeez, yeah. it was a one-man team. He didn't play much in the NFL, though, from what I read. Right. A lot of it was down to going to the war around that time. Yeah, but, well, this uh, is the thing, yeah. Yeah, he pretty yeah. much played basically a season and a half. Still had a lot of really good runs in those times, though, but uh, yeah. It was a shame. Kind Different of, times, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a what if. Yeah, indeed. September 29th, 1988, the USA beats Australia 78-49 to 49 to take bronze medal in Seoul in the basketball, the last time the US was represented by non-professionals. Now, having said that, the team was littered with future NBA players, including David Robinson, Dan Marley, Mitch Richmond and Danny Manning, just to name a few. And we actually spoke during our Olympic recap in episode 62, entitled OK Boomers, the FIFO Lockdown Games, about our previously unathletic teams. And I think we rattled off most of the guys in this team, the likes of Andrew Gaze, Phil Smythe, Ray Borner, Larry Sangstock, etc. But a great effort from the Boomers. This was the first bronze medal game that the Aussies had been a part of. And the Aussies would follow that with losses in the bronze medal games in the 96 Atlanta games, 2000 Sydney games, and the 2016 Rio games before finally breaking through this year. Yes. 2016 was an absolute joke, though, of course. It was. Bullshit umpiring. Now, random fact. Did you know that the USA's first ever basketball game at the Olympics was won 2 0? Was that when they were using peach baskets? No, too? this was 1936. Yeah, okay. So 2-0. What I was forfeited. Spain off. forfeited the yeah, game. Yeah, okay. Okay. They just had enough of it. <laughs> they also didn't lose a single game in their first seven Olympics before the controversial loss to the USSR in 1972. Ah, oh, we also talked about that one as well, Stewie, in episode 15. Good TMing. Good TMing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic TM, of course. September 29th, 1991, Bernard Langer misses a six-foot par putt on the 18th green, which would have clinched a 14-all tie and retained the Ryder Cup for Europe on the US soil. It was the United States' first win since 1983, after losses in 85, 87, and a tie in 1989. There are a couple of big controversies out of the event, though. Prior to the first day, Steve Pate, among others, was involved in a minor caravan accident, which resulted in him bruising his ribs and being sent to hospital. He set out the first three days and was set to compete on Sunday, but before his singles match with David Guilford, the US team announced that he couldn't play and that their match was automatically halved in what ended up being a crucial result in the scheme of things. This looked even worse given Pate actually played in a four-ball match earlier that day. Making things worse, though, during the four-ball match of Sevi Ballesteros and Jose Maria Alathabal versus Paul Azinger and Chip Beck, the Europeans accused the Americans of changing the compression of their ball on the seventh tee, in violation of the one-ball rule, which states you can only use one brand and model of ball during a round. Of course, the Americans denied the accusation until such time as it became apparent that they could no longer be penalised for it, and then admitted the breach of rules. Naughty, naughty. Touchy bastards. On October 1st, 1933, the New York Giants defeat the Green Bay Packers 10-7 at Borchert Field in Milwaukee, despite making a grand total of zero first downs. <laughs> wow. Funnily enough, Green Bay decided to play the game at Borchert to try and drum up bigger crowds, but only 12,467 turned up, only slightly more than would have likely turned up in Green Bay. Well, if you can't move the chains, you're not going to get fans no matter where no. you're playing. Ken Strong nailed a 39-yard field goal and Dale Burnett took a 19-yard reception in for a touchdown to give New York a 10-0 lead at the half. John Bloody scored on a three-yard run for the Packers, but it wasn't enough. I did see, though, that the quarterbacks were the ones converting the touchdowns back then with the extra points. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Since 1940, the only other team to win a game without recording a first down was, funnily enough, the New York Giants, who beat Washington 14-7 in late September 1942. It beggars belief. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, when we recorded last week in the India tour of Australia in the women's ODI series, the Australian women successfully chased down 226 in 41 overs in match one. The streak was extended to 25 consecutive ODI wins, not without controversy in a 275 to 274 in that second ODI. That, yeah, no, there's, there's, I'm very much on the fence about it. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. I just kind of want to, sum this game up really, really quickly. So 
what was great about this game was it was the first time that you could actually see the Indian women's side kind of understand what they could be. Because quite often they're like, they were basically deer in headlights against the Aussie women. I mean, the women's team from Australia are phenomenal, but the Indian side, they're, they're a good team. They've got a lot of good players. Oh, Julianne, I, so I actually watched a bit of it and Julianne was swinging it all over the yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, she yeah. was like, it was, that ball was talking. It was moving a lot. Yeah. So you talked about the 274 that they made. And look, that's mostly down to down to Mandana. She made 86. But looking at players like Risha Gosh, she, she okay, she's not the best wicket keeper going, but the 44 that she made was absolutely crucial in them getting to that total. And it was a nice little follow-up. She made 32 off 29 in the first game. But I think what kind of worried me the most about that innings was the fact that the Aussies bowled 17 wides as part of 31 extras. Mm. So quite a lot. And that'll become even more important when we talk about the third game. But they say that great sides show their greatness when their back's up against the wall. Now, if you look in this game, three for 34. So Alyssa Healy, Meg Lanning and Elise Perry all making six or less. And that is actually their fewest combined total runs in a game where all three of them have batted. And that's that's the bit of the game I watched. I saw those second and third wickets and it was looking very shaky. Very, very shaky. Yeah. And yeah. four for 52 not long after that, the end of the 16th over. So that's where you see the class of players like Beth Mooney. She made 125 not out. She had a good series. She was out there for every single ball of that match. So it's nuts. And then she got great support from Talia McGrath, 74, and then 39 off 38 from Nicola Carey. So, yes, the controversy. Mm. Yes, well, sometimes great teams benefit from a little bit of luck too, don't they? Mm -hmm. There was a very line ball umpiring decision that meant that an Indian win soon turned into an Australian win with a hip-high full toss. Yeah, so basically Goswami, she bowled an excellent last over, it has to be said, but waist high, no ball was called. So Nicola Carey's basically turned one straight to mid-wicket and I turned it off. And then about an hour later, I get this you, notification. You and I'm chat, like, yeah. I was like, what? How did, what? How, we didn't, we lost. <laughs> it was like watching the wrong match. So I went back and watched it and yeah, sure enough, that was it. So yeah, it, I mean, what a time to have to make that call. And it should never have even really come to that because I'd kind of mentioned before about how Gosh is not the greatest wicketkeeper going around. She missed an absolute dolly of a stumping off Deepthi Sharma. And she actually bowled a lot better than her figures as well. She was brilliant. One for 60 off nine does not tell you how well she bowled. But that was a really big turning point as well because Kerry should have been out just as the Aussies were getting into their stride towards that target. So, yeah, second chance was taken. They turned what looked like a very straightforward one into a, uh, a very comfortable, two. comfortable yeah. two in the end. It yeah. should not have been. But but Australia's 26-game ODI winning streak is now officially over. 23 players in all. Gardner, Healy and Mooney played all of the games. The streak lasted 1,294 days since March 2018. Games were played across six countries and against six different opposition. 14 matches were won batting first, 12 won batting second. So it was dominant pretty much any way you sliced it. But in that third ODI, Australia made 264, India successfully chasing it down in 49.3 overs, 266, in spite of a dropped catch, a very easy dolly to your favourite player, Snap. Snare, oh, snare. There was a court and bold. It was an absolute gimme she dropped, but uh, it, it didn't matter because well, they got the win. Here's the thing, though. India was still the better side in the field that day. So, yeah. Great. Okay, yeah, okay. I, I must admit, I didn't see Australia in the field. I saw when Australia was batting a little bit. Look, great performance by the Australian middle order. 52 from Mooney. She came in at five because Rachel Haynes was back. Ash Gardner made 67. Talia McGrath, 47. But... Yeah, Goswami, superb. Three for 37 off her 10. She was just, yeah, out of this world bowling. And she actually took the wickets of Haynes and Lanning as well, who are two incredible players. But, yeah, how's this? India's greatest ever run chase in women's ODIs, the second highest for any team against Australia. And it came down to two of their bowlers. So Deepthi Sharma and Snet Rana, they were so composed. They made sort of like a runner ball 33 just when the game was right in the balance. But as I said, very un-Australian performance, heaps of dropped catches, missed runouts, a wicket off a no ball, and 31 wides. Yes, well, maybe the chickens came home to roost after some luck in the second match. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's undisciplined, isn't it? That's poor. Absolutely. 
So question without notice, Nath, what do you think is the most impressive part of this streak? The fact that they are all wins. Games can get rained out. There is an occasional tie. It's pretty rare. But just, just the streak itself is so impressive. Now, yes, the competition in the ladies' game isn't quite as competitive as the men's game, but there are still some bloody good teams. You know, the England team, New Zealand are no slouch. So there's some the Sri Lankans have, have uh, upset us before as well. So, yeah, just the, the fact that they were all wins was quite remarkable. For me, I think there's probably two things, and you, you kind of mentioned one of them having 23 different players across there. And I, I was kind of wondering how many of the players actually played in all of those games. And the fact that it's only, what, three of three, them? Three, yeah, yep. That tells you that this team is able to, when, you know, when their back's against the wall with injuries, that's We have good depth. Really good depth. But, yep. yeah, players are able to step in. We've seen players come in and take key wickets with, you know, their, their first or second game or players making big runs that are sort of down the batting order a little bit. You know, we talked about Talia McGrath. She has had two very, very good innings in the last two games. And Okay, we didn't win both of them, but she was pretty much the main reason that we won the second game. The other thing, though, is the consistency. Ten matches were won by at least 89 runs, which is a huge... Yeah, oh, that's a massive Huge margin. margin. Yeah, it is. And, another, and maybe some of that's talking about the parity to the women's game, oh, but it's course. still impressive. You can only play the people in front of you, so... Of course. But having said that, a couple of those games were against India, and yes. they just beat us. Yeah, yeah. And then there were another eight games in that streak that were won by at least five wickets. Now, okay, a couple of them were last ballers, but just so consistent. Yeah. Just oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a streak that may never be topped. Mm. It's got to be said. Yep. So just quickly, some excitement in the shield. I saw Cam Green had another ton, which bodes well for the Ashes. Can't wait to see him put on the baggy green again. And Sean Marsh. Well, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's not pulling on the baggy no. green again. But Could the, you... Could you did you just hear all of Victoria just <laughs> screaming no? <laughs> the rest of Australia, forget forget just Victoria. Uh, but there was concerns today when at the very last minute, the match between, I believe it was Queensland and Tasmania was called off. Yeah, it was like due to COVID. Ten, yeah, about 10 minutes before the yeah. opening ball because there's been four cases in Queensland. It just... It doesn't bode well for the summer, does it? Just can't take a trick right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. We just, we, I think, again, because we're in Perth, we kind of take things for granted a little bit. We've just got to be happy with any sport we get. Mm. Any sport we get. Yep. And we're now getting into kind of third season in a row, starting to be compromised. I talked about the NBA at the top. So yeah, hopefully uh, that will only be a blip on the radar. Yep. Bit of IPL news quickly as well. Just really quick, yeah. I, I didn't see much of it, as I mentioned at the top, but I did see David Warner out for a duck in his first game back. Yeah, the first duck, I believe, he'd had in the IPL since 2017 or something. It was a long time. He's had a good run. Yeah. And pretty much now won't play for the team again. Yes, right. So he's been benched. <laughs> well, is... when you're only allowed two international players, it can be a, a cruel game. It can be. Yeah. But now the one thing I was shocked to see was the end of the Kings 11 Punjab and Rajasthan Royals match. So they're chasing down 185. Kings were 120 for no loss off 11.5 overs. Cruising. Absolutely coasting. Walking it in. Yep. They needed eight runs off the last two overs with eight wickets in hand. In modern cricket, that is about as easy as a cakewalk as you get. And Mustafika Rahman held them to four off the penultimate over. And then Kartik Tiagi concedes one run for two wickets off the last over. One run. I don't, well, I don't I know what you're going to say. I don't want to say it, but does it scream match fixing? Well, it was all over social media. Now, I must admit, I haven't watched the footage, so I really would like to watch the footage. Look, he bowls amazingly. He follows the guy bowling beautiful York. Well, maybe. Maybe it wasn't. That, well, what, it was, what, is, what was the batter doing the to batter, use the correct oh, parlance? The, the, the batter was moving all over the crease, but you just got to argue, how do you not at least take Try and take a bye, if nothing else. But how do you not just get some form of bat on it and just run? Block and run. Yeah. You literally need four runs. Yeah. And you and you get one. I, I just don't understand how that happens. Mm. I really don't. Mm. No, huge win for Rajasthan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, just a quick one to finish things off. Moen Ali has announced his retirement in a... Moen Ali, fabulous here. Mali of England. <laughs> yes, he's announced his retirement from Test cricket and a huge boost to the English chances of winning the Ashes. 
I've never rated Moen Ali. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He was very mercurial. On his day, he could be the best player in the entire game with bat and or ball. But yeah, his his bad was probably more often than his good. Yeah, I'd, I'd beg to differ. Quite well, and, and playing him as their specialist spin bowler was probably not a great. It was like in when Australia tried that with Steve Smith or Glenn Maxwell. That really comes off. I dare say the Australian batters were licking their lips yeah. at the prospect to face him on Ali's pies. Yeah. So yeah, it's a look. It's a, it's a big dent to the Ashes chances for the Aussies, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see what England come up with. All right, Nathan, you know what that music means. What are you out for? I think you should take the reins on that from now on, Stuart. Well, I went first because I was going to say, great to have a beer with Cody. We're going to have a beer with Cody Ellis to say thank you for the interview he gave to us a few weeks ago. Do go back and listen. It was a great interview. What about yourself, mate? Well, NBA preseason, kind of. Nets and Lakers kicking things off, but God knows who's actually going to be playing in that one. <laughs> I know the preseason means stuff all, but I am ready to have the NBA back on the screen. And I'm pretty apt to see the Australia versus India pink ball test coming up as well. Should be a beauty. Amen. Until next time, I'm Stuart. And I'm Nathan. We are the Sport Blokes.